All right, hello and welcome to Between the Liars with Ryan and Josh. Hello, hello. And we are the dynamic duo today because uh, everybody else is out. So we've uh, doing something a little different. <laughs> we are doing something a little bit different. So that's two weeks in a row you get something completely different from us. So uh, yeah, let us know what you think of our, our new approaches. We are not replacing our normal scheduled programs. We're just branching out on the weeks when we have a little bit less... Uh, manpower going. So today we're going to be discussing the history of voting rights, uh, and I feel like this still remains relevant as uh, the Senate still has not voted on what the House did pass, the H.R. 1, uh, and so that that is still up. So, you know, we'll, we'll give you a history in the incredibly long time it takes for them to get around to doing their job and voting on the legislation. So, uh, Josh, why don't you start our announcements and then uh, we'll get into it. Yeah, I mean, as always, our first announcement is to please follow us on all of our social media, our Instagram, our Facebook page, our Twitter, our YouTube channel, our TikTok. If you want to support us, that is one of the best way to do it. The algorithm loves when people interact with stuff, leaving comments on our videos, liking it. Even if you go back and like an old episode, that's good for us. If you want to support us and you're not looking at um, what Ryan is, will talk about here soon in the next announcement, membership, like, share, share, follow, all of those big social media pop buttons, you want to be clicking those. It will help, you know, if you think discourse like this needs to spread, that is a way that you can help do it, help us do that. You know, we cannot do that without your all support in that way. Um, and so we would greatly appreciate it. And Josh set me up beautifully for our memberships. Remember that if you want to hang out with us 30 minutes before and 30 minutes after the show, if you'll go and follow some of the links, we've got uh, some membership options for you and you can uh, hang out with us and just see us as normal people um, and just hear the ridiculousness that goes on before and after the show. In fact, sometimes we have like almost whole segments after the show where we're just chatting <laughs> and something comes up and we just we just don't stop talking. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, if you uh, join our memberships, you'll get behind the scenes. You'll be able to join our Discord channel and uh that brings us to the new ish music that's no longer new but still fire that uh josh is gonna hit on that's yeah cool. our wonderful music provided by andrew hensley over at secret spike studio 865 audio his new single out is called misty it's available on all major streaming platforms if you like kind of the smooth jazz that you hear in our intro and outro it is along those lines so if you want something to study to to focus to um or just some background music to make, give you know, put a little more pep in your step as you're going through your daily chores. Music like this is fantastic for it. Um, we all great all of it here. Obviously, if we did it, it would not be as a part of our intro because we think it is just that fantastic. It's it's a jam. And uh, speaking of making friends and expanding our network, if you recall, we had Luigi C from the Agree to Disagree show on our show. Uh, it was Marcelo and I, and we talked about the trucker convoy as he is Canadian. And his show is all about, uh, it's mainly politics, mainly Canadian politics, but he does a lot of pop culture and other things. He has very interesting guests on every single week. And uh, he did have us on last week. And you can you can go over, not you know obviously after this show, once you've watched us. But go over and watch. Uh, give his give his channel some love. You can just look up the Agree to Disagree show. He is on all podcast platforms as well as on YouTube and on Twitter. And uh, we're also going to be sharing that on our immediate platforms as well. So what we're going to do now, Josh, uh, I'll just turn it over to you. Josh has most of the information here. I'm going to ask questions. Sometimes I'll hurry us along so we can keep it into an hour. But uh, mainly this is going to be coming from Josh today. 
Yeah, so um, today's show, if anything, is going to be formatted if you're familiar with a podcast called Behind the Bastards of where the host typically comes in and reads a historical event or about a historical person in some narrative form. And he does it good and usually has a comedian on and they have quite the flow with it. And, you know, we're not going to be that great at this, but hey, <laughs> I will monologue at you for sure. Um, but we wanted to talk about uh, in today is the, like the history of voting rights because um, if I do have, if I will have several the, uh, theses um, throughout this um, this episode, and thesis num- thesis number one is going to be the education system has lied to you, <laughs> um, and the history of voting rights is a lot more bumpy uh, than we give it credit for, and we tend to think it happened for m- more most people a lot sooner than it really did. Because that's probably the fundamental misconception was after the American Revolution, things changed in the day-to-day life of most Americans. And that's point one where the lie starts of it didn't. Um, What happened is all of the tax people, all of the business owners in America who were upset at the the taxes that the British were imposing on the colonies – They decided to stop paying their crown taxes. Individual citizens in America did not have to stop paying their taxes to them, though. They just started collecting the taxes instead of the crown and then stopped paying taxes themselves. It's a fantastic system if you think about it for them. (laughs) Well, it is important to note they didn't do that right away. There was a transitionary period, but we did eventually get to being taxed. Yeah, I mean, we eventually, like, worked it around of where, you know, because, you know, there's also a great mantra about American history of, yep, everything, in fact, is indeed related to uh, slavery. Like when we think about the idea of interstate commerce, of why we say you can't, ta- why you, there, why states can't have like tariffs on each other, why you can't be taxed for moving one item from one state to another. Well, that's because the United States used to consider humans property. And so if a plantation wanted to relocate from one state to another, it would be very detrimental if you had to pay taxes to transport all of your slaves because you were transporting property across state lines. So the whole reason you can't tax across interstate lines is because of slavery. Um, and a lot of U.S. politics is shaped like that. And for the majority of U.S. voting rights history, um, slavery is also kind of the defining underpinning of what shaped the idea of what voting rights should be. Because there's always this question of, well, who should we actually be allowed to be making decisions here? Because when America first started, only about 6% of the population could vote. You had to be a white male, had to own land, and that land had to have a business on it, had to generate revenue. So it had to be, like, for some most states, it was 40 to 50 acres of land, and it had to produce a number of shillings per year because it hadn't, didn't have the U.S. dollar yet. And if you didn't meet those qualifications, you couldn't vote. It didn't matter. Um, there was no like vote re- voter registration type thing. There was just a everyone. I mean, was, you also got to think about very small population in comparison to what we would consider America today. So it wasn't would not be that hard for the local officials to know who all of the land owning businessmen were in town. There was probably only a few dozen per town, and that few dozen people voted for the entire town. Um, sometimes there were states where only a few hundred to a few thousand people in total were voting. Um, even though some several hundred thousand people would live in that state, only you know one to three thousand people might vote. 
So, and, and one of the things you want to remember is that as they started this, um, in order to make sure that people had a vested stake, that's, that's why you had to own land and it had to produce a certain amount of revenues. Because if you're going to have a say in the regulations, they were believing that you needed to have a specific stake and that you would be impacted. Now, of course, you can draw that line across the race, but for the original purpose, it, it was that the people who were voting happened to be white and male because they were the ones who owned the property, but they didn't explicitly say you had to be white and male. They said you had to own property, and that happened to be the other way around there. Well, and the well, and some states did explicitly state that you had to be white and male, but for them, they also got around that by you could only own property if you were white and male in the first place. Because uh, women couldn't own, you know, buy, buy land. You know, it was in the 1970s when a woman could go right. get a credit card or open a bank account without a man's signature. So while women did own land, owning a business was very rare. Um, and even then, some and that's and, and in states that allowed women to own business, a lot of them had the "you must be male to vote." Um, right. Which, and again, like of course. The way that it was exercised was damaging, but like I do just want to make sure that as we're talking about like what was the intent, we we mirror some of those things now, right? Like you you need to be a citizen to be able to vote because you need to you, you need to be affected by the laws if you're going to have a say on what they are, and that that has kind of been the one thread that has remained true as we've we've gone and and progressed. Yeah. Well, and with all historical topics and the study of history, whether you're researching history or writing about history, um, you, run, you run into the, one of the bigger debates within the historical field is not bringing our present kind of framework and our present understandings into the past and being like, oh, well, well, why didn't they just you know, know everything we do in the 21st century? And it's like, well, they lived 400 years ago. That's why. But it's also worth noting that it, it's, it's not like some of the arguments that got made that get made now weren't being made back then. Like Thomas Jefferson, while owning, being a slave owner, actually wanted to outlaw slavery in the Constitution. He thought, like, if we're going to put that all men are free uh, and equal, then perhaps we should outlaw slavery uh, or else we're kind of being hypocrites. And a lot of the people in the room agreed with him. But the problem was a lot of the other people didn't, and they weren't going to sign the Constitution with a ban on slavery in it, and the American, you know, American you know, Republic would have never began. And so, it's you know, we can look at it and say, okay, there were bad people. There were there were people who were saying slavery is bad back then and condemning it on religious and secular grounds. So it's not like, so like these people kind of knew they weren't being the best of people, but they also. We're working in a very pragmatic, you know, pragmatic of they were surrounded by a whole lot worse other people. Right. And and you and needed that unity. If they if they had any prayer of overthrowing the government and starting a new one, they needed everybody on board. And they like you mentioned, Josh, they weren't going to get that if the states that were going to have slaves as a large part of their labor weren't going to be able to do that in the new <laughs> in the new yeah, nation. Yeah, right after the Revolutionary War, America was not ready for the Civil War yet. They needed to, the nation <laughs> a little, a little reco- just time, a little recovery time <laughs> um, to recover. Um, we then got our military ready by fi- fighting with the Mexican army, uh, and then we decided to fight each other. Uh, but we needed some time. Um, but that also kind of make like if you look at the, like part of the revolution of like of the ad hoc being thrown together and then they throw off the british and now they all have to come back around the table and figure out okay now what 
uh, um, Alexander Hamilton was like, well, we'll just make George Washington king, like very clearly, because Alexander Hamilton wanted to set up another monarchy. Uh, the idea that America was going to be a democratic republic was not guaranteed when the Constitutional Convention first started, it was not guaranteed when the Articles of Confederation were first written. Um, the result, you know, the Federalist and anti um, Federalist discourse, the Federalists were much more authoritarian than even just federalists um they legitimately um wanted you know wanted to offer george washington the crown um so most people couldn't vote when america first got first got started and it wasn't in particularly by accident either because one of the fundamental beliefs of liberalism um, is that even though people should self-determine and should be free and should have the right to vote, you know, in that sense of liberalism, there's still this idea that there needs to the buck has to stop somewhere. There needs to be someone in charge, and that's kind of where the idea of having the liberal government comes in. Of yeah, everyone's free, but then we vote and create kind of this third-party mediator that enables us all to be free and protects us from not being free you know, from each other. It, it's kind of like if you're in a group and uh, nobody wants to take the position of leadership, then you get nothing done because no one's responsible. It's the worst of both worlds. Like you, nothing gets done. No one has to take responsibility. Nobody has to stand up and say, all right, look, Josh, like you haven't given me your part. You know, these states have not done this. Like you need a unifying factor. Yeah, and especially for, you know, we just threw off a revolution of, you know, one of the world's largest military powers, and um, we're praying that after they get done dealing with the French, they don't show back up, like, because there was a French-British war going on. If, if, if anything, we were a proxy war occurring during that war. Uh, that's why the Brit French sent us help to, like, further distract the British military from key defenses over in Europe. Um and in the end, part of the reason why the, the, the Brits were just like, okay, fine, because they ended up sort of losing money on the colonies and they started losing more profitable territories in Europe to France. And they were like, okay, the territories are no longer worth it. We need to go protect these other holdings. Um, so when America first got started, voting rights, not very great. Um, primaries did not exist. The parties just picked who was going to be on the ballot for you, and then you got to pick who was going to be on the ballot. And, of course, and during this time, <laughs> and eventually, who would win? It was it was first place was president, second place was vice president. You you didn't you didn't have a <laughs> yeah. package deal at the time either. Um, you didn't vote on your state senators. Your governor appointed those, um, and. Sometimes for some states, you didn't vote on the senators within the state, but the county mayor would appoint them. Um, really, yeah, I mean, you had to get a lot of variety of different ways of the way the government worked had a whole lot less input from the people than it did before. And I think the political parties not having primaries is a real key you know, signifier of that, which is also worthwhile to note today. They're not required to have those primaries. If if in 2024 the Republican Party decides we're not going to have primaries and we just want to appoint Donald Trump to be the Republican Party candidate, there's nothing anyone can do to stop them. Not a single lawsuit, not a single court court case, not a single nothing. There's no law mandating primary elections happen. I think that is. I do just think a that, private venture of the parties. I mean, it would be a bad idea if they did that. But. It would, and that's what I was going to get into. Is I, I do think that kind of the almost like the societal norm that keeps that in place is 
ultimately they want to win, right? And so if they just pick the person that they want, they're not they're not going to do as well, right? Like I mean, I mean, we even kind of saw this with uh, Joe Biden, um, or uh, yeah, with uh, Bernie Sanders was pulling ahead, and there's like, you know what? Uh, we're just <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna make it so that you know we 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 think this person will fare better. So, for better or yeah. for worse, that's the way it is, I guess. Um. And, and for sure, like, and especially in like Bernie's 2016 election of where he won the, the ballots in West Virginia. And I mean that as in he got more than 51% in the vote in yeah. every single county in the West Virginia primary. But for some magical reason, Hillary Clinton got more delegates at the at the DNC convention. That's what than I Bernie Sanders did. I, I was like, thinking 2016, not 2020. Yeah. That's... Like Bernie got more votes but then got less electors it was just this magical thing that happened um uh, wow yeah <laughs> hindsight 2020 i guess i don't know <laughs> <laughs> really um so we didn't really start to see the right to vote to be expanded until president um jefferson um because he was much more of a what we might you know call libertarian laissez-faire let's get the government you know let's let's make sure the government can't be tyrannical i think there's a great thomas jefferson quote of like you know every few years you need to refresh the tree of liberty with the blood of a revolution <laughs> of just like you know every few years just go and scare the government into remind that they obey you and not the other way around um which i mean hey take that as you would not legal advice um but you know the the they really didn't he started the push and his his presidency and administration um weren't successful in getting it. like the movement started building and it started to become more popular because as more and more uh, as the population grew and the development of even a modicum of a middle class started to develop of where there were people who did not own the business but were skilled trades you know skilled trades uh, people who contributed significantly to their towns were like, hey, just because I'm an apprentice, you know, I own a house, I generate a lot of money, I work for everyone in this town, just because I'm an apprentice doesn't mean I shouldn't have the right to vote, you know, like a blacksmith's apprentice. Significantly important to the operation of the blacksmith, but only the blacksmith would get the right to vote because only the blacksmith was the owner of the shop. And so there's a lot of people who are like, you know, hey, we're serious, important people too. So what what's going on here and his history is named this you know jeffersonian and jacksonian democracy although more properly jacksonian democracy because it was president andrew jackson on top of all of the other terrible things he did was able to get this through of where pretty much all white men could vote if you were just a white man and a citizen you could vote and this got about 80 percent of white men voting by um 1850 by the 1850s so not only was that Every all white men were enfranchised, but people were very eager to take an opportunity of this. Like once given the chance, they were lining up. You know, yep, we want to do this. Um, and that is, if there is anything positive to say about Andrew Jackson, it was his expansion of voting rights. As limited as it was, I will say, every time you make it easier and safer for citizens to vote, you're doing a good thing. Um, and any and any time a politician's like, we need to make it harder to vote. I'm suspicious of them. People who don't like elections are suspicious. <laughs> I, I I somewhat agree with that because like I, I don't think that easy to vote is the key. I think that it should be easy for all people who are uh, qualified to do so, right? But like you got to be careful. I think 
when you just say it just needs to be easy, right? Because then that's where you start opening yourself up to either fraud or people who aren't qualified to vote voting. So halfway agree there. Well, see, and we'll get to that phrase "qualified" later, uh, because you know, that was a significant part of the legislation that existed, you know, after the Civil War. Yep. Because you know, we'll give it. You say we'll we'll, um, we'll stay on track. <laughs> we'll we'll <laughs> very much. So, we're going to get condensed. Uh, condense some history. And we're and we're the still eighteen hundreds now. <laughs> and then the Civil War happens. Um, and then the you know, and then the process of the Civil War, and then in the later fallout, the Thirteenth, Fourteenth, and Fifteenth Amendments to the United States Constitution are passed. Okay, so, so for those who might not be aware, just remind us what Thirteenth, Fourteenth, and Fifteenth Amendment did, just briefly. So the Thirteenth Amendment outlawed slavery, except for the cases of imprisonment. So we did not completely outlaw slavery, which is why we're able to get away with paying prisoners like 25 cents an hour to print our license plates because they are, because you can't complain because slavery is technically legal as a punishment for imprisonment. Um, the 14th Amendment did what we might call nationalized, as how my uh, civil rights professor called it, nationalized the Bill of Rights. When the Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments of the constitution existed, they only applied to the federal government. So Congress shall pass no law that infringes free speech, butchering of the first amendment there. That did not mean that your state government could not pass a law censoring free speech. And they did. A lot of them did. Um, a lot of them had regulations on weapons that you could own that the second amendment would not, uh, would not allow for um, because the guarantees of the Bill of Rights was a guarantee from the federal government to you. Um, and so the 14th Amendment set up the Equal Protection Clauses, which meant if you're an American citizen, the promises of the federal government are equal to you regardless of what part of the United States you live in. Um, that it simply does not matter if you come from Georgia, you come from Florida, or you come from New York, the Bill of Rights is the same Bill of Rights. Um, and the 15th Amendment worked in, insofar that if you were a citizen, your nation of origin, your ethnicity or race could not be used against you if you were otherwise eligible to vote. So this meant that, you know, uh, black men who are American citizens, because in a part of the ending of slavery, um, well, slaves were technically always American citizens, just enslaved ones. Very weird legalese going on here. But part of what that did, though, with it is at this point in time in history, the indigenous um, people and Native Americans and the different tribes, they were not um, even the ones that had been resettled at this point in time in history onto reservations as the Cherokee had already been by President Jackson. They weren't American citizens. They were citizens of their own sovereign nation. So this did not apply to them. Um, and so, the only way quick they could get their vote by was to leave their tribe and come join the town. I was going to say, I, I have a quick clarification question. You may or may not know this, but was that a decision by the American government or was it because the native tribes wanted to retain kind of their own sovereignty? Which, which of those two was the larger contributing factor there? I would say it, at, at that point of history, it's a bit of a 50-50 because at that okay. point of history, a lot of, the, a lot of the indigenous people were at least – Still, somewhat hopeful that America, that the Europeans may not take 
absolutely everything. Right. And they and they no. did they did have a very strong cultural connection with their tribe and wanted to kind of be a little bit more autonomous. Yeah. Well, and the other part was that if you wanted to become an American citizen, you had to basically completely abandon your community. Like you had to leave and then if you went back, you would lose your citizenship. So Which you had to you leave even- behind your family. You even Maybe almost see that friends. today, right? Like, if you want to be an American citizen, you must renounce, and, and every country does this, right? Like, you must renounce all other citizenships. You get one, unless, of course, Maybe you, 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 right? That's the one exception. But like, if I, since I have no claim to dual citizenship, wanted to transfer, I have to renounce my American citizenship. Versus somebody who was born in another. I, I don't know the technicalities. But I'm 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 like ninety nine percent sure you have to. Yeah. Well, some it countries entirely. will allow you to have dual citizenship, like they sign treaties with each other to right, almost with like a reciprocity. So, so like you could, like American and Brits, American Canadians, a yeah. lot of most of like our the close friends in Europe, the French, the Germans, you can have a dual citizenship in Australia. You can have dual citizenship in those countries and retain your American citizenship. Hmm. I'm I guess not I was sure how that would to renounce it entirely. Good, good. Um, I learned something. Look at that. I'm not sure how well that would work if, say, you tried to get a dual citizenship with China. I imagine China would ask you to announce American citizenship. I am Um, quite positive. From their perspective, they would be like, "Um, you're welcome here, which may or may not also be, you know, depending. (laughs) Depending on the the situation, yeah. Yeah, I mean – that is actually that's another side topic. Uh, we, we, we've derailed. <laughs> we did, we are not here to talk about American citizenship. Sorry, let's let's go back to. Well, uh, I mean, it, it is <laughs> very important in like in voting rights because uh, that's like a lot of how of uh, throughout the time of as Native Americans got the right to vote. One of the critical ways that was done is, you know, once we had settled the continental America. And we had set up, you know, kind of the more defined reservations. Eventually, we did pass a law that granted dual citizenship to all Native Americans, that they could both be sovereign citizens of their people, and they could be sovereign citizens of the United States, and and thereby engage in elections. Because we, they lived inside of our, you know, they live inside of our country. Um, And so we're affected by a lot of the laws we are passing, you know, especially nowadays, like when we see protests over, um, like, pipelines or different construction process, you know, running across lands that were, you know, that are theirs, that were promised to them by, by treaties. And the American history with the, you know, indigenous people is a series of broken treaties and genocide. So just to citizenship, you know, does play a part of it. I I was sent an interesting thing by Angela that said before 1967, the United States just did not allow dual citizenship. So I did not know that. Yeah. Which is yeah, very right. interesting. So, so that also must have must have played into that as well. Um. So, so yeah, I mean, it also it plays into a big right because you know, you know, and I don't have any um, sources on this. I don't want really to talk about this now. But you can look at like the idea of like the Chinese Exclusion Act and some of the things that were going on in the West Coast to disenfranchise um, non-white populations there. Um, in the same way, you know. Um, the different populations are being disenfranchised, whether it's indigenous people or... or um, there have been a lot of people, people who have used times of crisis to suspend the rights of American citizens because you have to remember also that those um, uh, the, the Chinese Americans who lost their rights, they were Americans, right? Like, it wasn't like we had immigrants here who were now relocated. <laughs> like, these, these were American citizens who happened to be ethnically Asian and they they wound up having these rights suspended, which uh, that w- that was under FDR, wasn't it? 
Um, well, so the Chinese Exclusion Act was an immigration policy, but if, if the internment, like the Japanese that, internment, that's what I'm yeah, talking about. Yeah, yeah, the Japanese internment was we just started arresting American citizens, business owners, yep. community leaders, pastors, any any Japanese American, pretty much just got arrested. Um, George um, Takei uh, Takai from Star Trek, who played um, Sulu. Yep. Um, when he was a child, um, he was in an internment camp when he's in, in his young age. Um, so, and he was born here in America. His parents were born here in America. Um, they owned a business. They were good community members. And times of war and crisis, boom, suspended, <laughs> violation of constitutional rights. So, so the Chinese Exclusion Act then that was just explicitly referring to they can't vote. Then is that? It, yeah, well, it's like you all can't come over here anymore, and you're definitely not citizens. <laughs> okay, so less. So um, it was almost tangentially related to voting then, because we just weren't. Yeah. we were excluding them from coming. Okay, that makes more sense. Yeah, and, th- and there's a lot of that of where like they, you know, you push like you push this lever, and especially as more laws get set in stone to make it harder to curtail the right to vote, the the subtle lever pushing to make. Um, it, to make voting a more restricted process becomes a lot more intricate, a, mo- a lot more thought out. Sure. And we first start seeing this in the immediate after war, uh, in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War. You know, when we start entering the Jim Crow era of proper, you know, segregation, and through physical segregation, obviously this is a lot easier. You can be like, oh, you know, you all just can't live in this part of town. You all can't be here. You all can't do this. You can't. You can't be in this town at all. Yep. Um, and you could control politics that way. Like if you wanted to make, you know, depending on how your state votes, um, like in Mississippi, there's a lot of state election things that only work if you get more than half the counties. Right. So when you had segregation, you could just funnel all of the population that you made sure you wanted to control how they voted into a certain few counties and then have counties with, a couple hundred thousand, you know, a couple ten thousand people in there, you know, vote for, and, th- and their votes would count just as much as the people who were voting in the, you know, 100, 200,000 person county. But since it was done on the basis of numbers of counties, it didn't matter. Uh, and so shuffling populations around through segregation and Jim Crow laws was a very sufficient way. But that's also where we first started getting the actual barriers to voting. Uh, and we saw this primarily in, in the form of literacy tests, uh, poll taxes, and what's really curious, and why I actually try to avoid this phrase, is the grandfather clause, uh, which people don't realize has a slavery um, background, but it's uh, 100% rooted in slavery. The grandfather clause was you could vote if your grandfather could vote. Well, if you were a recently freed black man um, right after the Civil War, your grandfather was probably a slave and thereby could not vote. And you can't vote, which means your grandchildren will not be able to vote because they could not be grandfathered in because you couldn't vote. So the grandfather clause created an, uh, a chain of non-being able to vote. Um, so l- let me ask you this then. What, what was the point of the grandfather clause if it only perpetuates the status quo? Like why introduce that as a law or as a, a regulation, if you will, if, because like, did you see what I'm saying? Like, if status yeah. quo, my grandfather could vote, then what good does it say? Like, you're not changing anything then, and well, and you could just leave it as is. Like, why why that? Well, see, it was with the Fifteenth Amendment, no one could be discriminated against on the basis of the color of their skin on voting. 
So you couldn't discriminate, you couldn't stop black people from voting on the color of their skin, but you could stop them if their grandfather could vote because there was okay. no laws about arbitrary rules. So you could basically disenfranchise the entire black population, indigenous population, whoever was not eligible to vote, mm. you know, until very recently by backdating their right to votes to their literal grandfathers. Um, so grand, you- so the, um, that's where the phrase grandfather clause comes from. Mm. And uh, I didn't know that. Uh, and you also had the other like reading and literacy tests that people had to do, which of course, if you were a slave and it was illegal for you to learn how to read and how to write, then you weren't going to pass those. So again, well, a barrier. And for a lot of the times, the literacy test just focused, was just a, a way for county clerk's office and very racist politicians in the deep South to exclude black people from voting because Sometimes they would get asked like these incredible questions that only a, like a professional lawyer would be able to answer of like, sure. please interpret section three of the fourth amendment of the you know state constitution. Yep. And sometimes they would turn in really, they would turn in qualified answers and they, they would, they would still get rejected. No, but because some of this paperwork is still uh, preserved, um, you can go back and see that a lot of times, you know, because the, the question was the same, because you know, but the answers and who got cleared based on the answer they gives is quite fascinating because um, there are also p- pieces of evidence of like here in Mississippi where someone's a, a, a literacy test, a white man turned in a literacy test where it says, I think black people using a very less appropriate word um, should have to go to school before they could vote. And it was spelled wrong. It was spelled in a way that made fun of the dialect. Um, It was spelled in, you know, kind of like an author can write in a way to um, suggest an accent or a dialect of someone. It was written in that way to be mocking and condescending. Um, So there were spelling errors, you know, and it was bad and broken English to make fun of black people submitted by a white man. And it was that same question, you know, interpret the, for, the the third section of the Fourth Amendment of the Mississippi Constitution, but that but that answer um, was cleared and was accepted, and he was allowed to vote. So even though are, an actual black lawyer answered the question and got rejected, are you sure it wasn't just the pure poetic irony of someone being a jerk and and like you know like when someone goes to correct someone's grammar and then their gra- grammar is wrong? Like how how do we know? And I'm genuinely asking here, how do we know that he wasn't just like illiterate himself and that he was actually mocking? Like, how, how do we distinguish that? I mean, so maybe the, so maybe that might be true of the individual. We may not know that, but that still does leave us with the giant question mark of the county clerk's office of. Oh, yeah, for not, sure. For he, sure. He did not make he did not answer the question. He did. Then, no, <laughs> but and, I, and his just... answer for the question was to be insulting. I mean, I guess I read why I think we can be determinant in the condescending nature is because the actual text was played into making a joke about literacy test of I think black people should have to go to school before they're able right. uh, to vote while also spelling it wrong, making which rhetorically impl- like makes the rhetorical implication of, and this is why, you know, okay. because they talk and, and write like this, you know? And so that's why I say we can be pretty sure about the individual, you know, mm-hmm. being just as much of a, of a racist jerk as, you know, the systematic racism that the county clerk's offices sure. were perpetuating. Another great uh, tactic they would use is that you could only register to vote on very selective days. 
like the county clerk's office would hold voter registration hours from like one o'clock to two o'clock in the afternoon on a Wednesday once a month, even though the county clerk's office was open all of the time, always had the paperwork on hand. And, and so that made it like difficult. Um, oh, and by the way, you could definitely just, you know, drop it off at the county clerk's office as a white man and they would just process it for you on that day and you could fill it out beforehand. But that opportunity to fill out the paperwork beforehand and drop it off and have them process it on there was not uh, true. So, and in one part that worked not only to limit the time, but then with the short time window, you would have a massive line. So it didn't matter how many people actually came out to vote. Only a select number of few would actually get registered because the line would be too long and they'd be like, oh, well, hours over. See y'all next month. So just barrier after barrier after barrier and through different pieces of legislation and constitutional amendments, uh, the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, the United States got rid of literacy tests and poll taxes and other things that tried to determine the quality of the voter. Because let's be like real here, like every American citizen should have the right to vote and should vote, even the stupid ones. It's kind of in the same vein of cops shouldn't kill people, even guilty ones. <laughs> there are certain rights that just should not should never be abridged, you know, regardless, because they're foundational to the, if not the actual foundations of our country, to the what we want our country to be. We want our country to be a bastion of freedom, of egalitarianism, of where people can come and without undue you know restriction you know kind of like Angela just said Angela just said like with you know um due process of like be able to express them you know solve represent themselves and that is something that wasn't you know that wasn't may have been aspired by the founders even if they didn't live up to it you know it's something we don't you know realistically live up to now even if we all aspire to it now we like to say that everyone's free and equal here in America but we know through a lot of different barriers and things that people still aren't all, you know, equal or, you know, similar as free. Like, it's just, I, I do think that it's always improving. I think it's important to still continue to make that distinction though, because in the Jim Crow era, everything that you mentioned is clearly racially motivated. I know that we've, and this would derail us, so we don't want to go too far into this, but like, I, I do think that, you know, with with the way the polls are open now, like they're open seven to seven and people are like, oh, well, it's not 24-7. So like it's it's a barrier to people. Like I, I don't think that you can say that any obstacle to voting, period, automatically means that it's racially motivated or that people are not equal. Like I think that the fact that we, we don't have laws that are targeting people based off of race. And of course, anything that like anytime you, you, you run data analysis and you break it down based off of demographics, there's going to be some discrepancies. I mean, that's, that's just by human nature like that. That's always yeah. going to be the case. So I would, I would caution that conclusion, but at least part of what you see, I can definitely agree with that. Uh, I mean, it, it, there's, there doesn't need to be literacy tests. Although personally, I think that if, if you're going to vote and you're going to exercise that right that you have as, as you should do, then then you should be doing your due diligence and not just voting, you know, like, oh, you know what, I'm just going to go eeny, meeny, miny, mo it. Like, I think you should be looking into it. But I also don't think that, you know, I should be like, Josh, did you do your due diligence? Ah, no, you didn't. You don't get to vote, you know. So, uh, and Angela raises a good point. The argument can certainly be exploited. Absolutely. Like, I, I mean, we even see a corruption of like the founding father's idea was you need a stake, you need skin in the game to vote. And, and there is a logic to that, right? Like, if I'm going to vote on something that's going to affect me specifically, 
then I, I should have a stake in there. Like even if that is as simple as if I'm going to vote on the way America governs itself, then the citizens who have to be subject to those laws have the largest stake. They then then like there should be that connection. And yet we see it being exploited when we have things like the poll tax or, or you know things that are are deliberately from that time period racially targeting people. Yeah, and I guess kind of in one of the things across history is while they've. And what makes a lot of people read, you know, oh, this is probably racially motivated outside of, you know, is there was a governor of Alabama, I want to say, or he, or he was some, or maybe it was a county clerk's office. He was some person involved. His name was Bull Connor. And so the term Bull Connor racism got developed. And that was when you were explicitly out loud racist. And you're not allowed to do that anymore in the legal system. But then they got really good at being quietly racist. And that's even somewhat of what the kind of the some of the Jim Crow laws were due because there was a 1955 Civil Rights Act, there was some voting legislation in 1960, but it was you know the 67 and 68 legislations that really changed the electoral process. But we see a lot of the same tactics still happen, and it doesn't come down to the right to you know the county clerk's office is always able to eligible to vote, but. You got to get that state issued ID. And what happens if the nearest DMV is 45 minutes away and you live in a really rural area that doesn't have public transportation and you need to go to the DMV in the first place so you already don't have a driver's license? You're then going to have a much harder time than a citizen who has a car and the means to get down to the DMV that is 45 minutes away instead of being located at a nice central location. Which which is true, but also like if you actually look at like the state government IDs that they're allowing, there's 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 incredibly you're you're talking about like non-significant numbers of people who don't have the ID that is required because ID is required for everything. I mean, if I want to if I want to drink, if I want to um, you know, if I want to drive, if I want to buy cigarettes, I, I have to show ID for all of those. If I want to be employed, I have to show a driver's license in many cases or some form of government issued ID. So like, I, I feel like this argument is just so much of a, of a, of an appeal to a, just emotion for the very in like almost, almost non-existent number of people. Um, just just because of what we require ID for on a regular basis, it's like okay, like let's say let's say you are that person. If you really want to vote, you'd still make it happen. I mean, there's it, it, there's just not as many people that fall into that category, though. I mean, there aren't very many. I think the numbers should uh, still be zero because I think it was in in Wisconsin, there was a county that had a DMV that was open on every fifth Wednesday. Yep, every fifth Wednesday <laughs> of the month. And there are weeks and there are months, at least two per year, that have a fifth Wednesday. That's, that's just how some months work. Like they'll start on a Wednesday and end on a Wednesday, something like that. Okay. That plays out in the calendar. So it wasn't like the DMV was never open. It was right. just only on the fifth Wednesday. Right. And so that's pretty much exactly the same thing as, oh, the county clerk's office is only open for registration, you know, on Tuesday from one o'clock to two o'clock in the afternoon every other month. I, I would be really interested to see why they did that, though, because like the DMV is not just about issuing things so people can vote. You know, like, I mean, I, there, there's got to be some reason. And I can pretty I, I won't say that it's not racially motivated because I, I don't I don't know. And I haven't looked into this, but like I I would really like to see more evidence produced before we just jump to ah, this is trying to exclude people from voting. Like, I, I just I, I think there's a, a threshold of proof that I would need to see before well, we, we, we go down that road. 
Um, from our home state, I think one of the most fantastic examples of voter suppression that happens in Tennessee is what happens with our undergraduate students. If you work at a Tennessee public institution and you have a, an ID and, you know, kind of like everyone has a student ID, yep. staff members and faculty members also have IDs. Yep. Your faculty ID is a very, is a acceptable form of photo identification because all school photos are photo IDs to vote in the state of Tennessee. Your student ID, which has the same information and your school has every bit of information about you because you tell them where you live, you tell them your phone number, you give them your email address, you give them your social security number, you, they have your bank account number if they, like for scholarships and stuff. They know who your parents are. They know where you want your degree mailed to. The school has every bit of information that a voter registration you know, might be like my school even requires me to say, where do I live while I'm down here? Like, where's your residency and where do you live while you're down here? But like, I guess my question then is like, is it really suppression or is it just, just like you, you can point out. But, that it's, like, written, assuming, but it's written in the law, bro. But like, all, they did it on purpose. Like, all, why all things do being, that? All things being, let, let's, let's say that I give you for a moment that everything that faculty have to turn is the same as students, uh, because I know that's not true in all states. I know that like for me out here in North Dakota, as an employee, I obviously have to, I turn in all of my identifications and my social security because I have to pay taxes and stuff because I'm being paid. But as a student, I wouldn't. So, but like, let's just say for the sake of argument, that's the case, that they're exactly the same. If you can show me a significant number of students who don't have some other valid form of of license and that they're incapable of getting it, then I'd say, okay, maybe maybe now we're seeing a bit of suppression. But that doesn't happen because, you know, the student's like, oh, okay, great. They don't take my student ID. Wham, here's my driver's license. Like, I, there's not, again, a significant number who don't then, have what's needed. There's not a significant reason to not let the student ID work, though. And I think that's the fundamental problem of we have Actually, legislation. I can give you a pretty good one. Um, Tennessee, I'll just take Tennessee Tech as an example. Uh, they have a large number of international and out-of-state students. You're yeah. not supposed to vote in the state of but Tennessee. They're the voting, but they're not on the voting rolls, Ryan. You that, have to register that's, to vote. That, that's fine. But what I'm saying is that, like, for that reason, like, I mean, it just it just helps narrow it down because faculty. But, not on the voting rolls. but faculty are going. I, I know they're not, but what I'm about saying international that, like, faculty members. That faculty, though. They're going to live in state versus students are potentially only temporarily there. Like, so the students won't be on the voting rolls. So it won't be a problem about their ID. They'll go out, say, "Here, I'm and here that's, to vote." You know, they again, open up the book and go, "Yeah, you're not registered <laughs> to vote here." I, I, so, I gave you. I mean, I, I did say, you know, like this. This might be a a very a, a very weird law that doesn't need to be there, perhaps. But again, I don't think it demonstrates suppression because you're not seeing that number of students who wanted to vote not have that ID. Like if, if those, well, I mean, if that, if that is produced, are some of the lowest voter turnout in America. So what age group though? Because that's not blanketly true. Well, I mean, like eighteen to twenty-one are like some of the lowest voting demographics of like all like people's maybe probably, people's tendency to vote uh, grows with age. They typically become more politically engaged. See, I, I, that, again, that really I varies by election because that's that actually wasn't the case in the last couple of elections. Like, it might have historically been true, but it's it's not at the moment. I mean, you're, you're seeing large numbers of people who were 18 to 21 turning out. Yeah. But when the, why create an unnecessary barrier if it's not solving any harm or causing any harm to enable? It's just... In a similar thing, and this has been changed because Tennessee changed it to require photo ID. Yep. But before it was all photo ID, you had to have some government ID. Yep. And it was, you could vote with your gun permit 
yep. but not your food stamps. Well, and again, you, I remember you bringing this and up that, in the past. Yeah, and that kills me. Like, no, well, on. no, 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 because no, because my <laughs> I am fingerprinted. That is in the national and state database. If I'm going to have a concealed carry permit, uh, I am one of the most heavily tracked people. If I'm an individual who carries, if I'm on food stamps, I qualify by not having enough funds. That's not the and same level of security, have- though. I turn in my address because the you government do, has to mail me my food stamps cards. Uh, but to pretend that the these are the same level of security. my bank account because I have to report my finances. Yep. And, you know, when you have to be buy a gun, you don't have to let the, the feds come in and look at your bank records. But you do when you have to apply for food stamps. Like, they're going to look at your bank records. They're going to monitor your finances. They're going to monitor how much property you're allowed to own. Because if you own too much property, they're going to kick you off the program. But, but finances so, – uh, but again, remember, remember – Ultimately, what's determining whether or not I'm voting is, am I who I'm saying that I am? That's the purpose of photo ID. And then the other I, part of that is... I can steal your gun ID as much as I can steal your food stamps card. Right, I mean, but, I have a, but it's... Because you have a gun, but like, you know... But again, if I've got extra security because, you know, I had to be fingerprinted and I am in in the, the database, as a, those are much more central to helping identify me, which then determines, am I living in the area that where I'm eligible to vote versus food stamps just monitors my bank account? That, that doesn't necessarily identify, can I vote or not? But living in the area of whether or not you're allowed to vote is up to the election commission and county clerk's office to maintain voter rolls. Right. Like, which we might want to we might want to shift to the voter rolls and the uh, gerrymandering before we run out of time because yeah. I know you've had some stuff on um, that. Like proving who you are, like different government ID can do that, and different IDs have massive, you know, different amounts of information. Any form of ID issued by the government, in my opinion, should be very easy to work because the real burden is on the county clerk's office and the you know local election commission of maintaining who's registered to vote and voter rolls and we will speed read through a bit of this it not was too 19- speedy don't lose us John. <laughs> not too speedy but uh, like uh, just to give a, a bit more history just to give it like of like where like voter rolls start becoming more of a concern sure. the senate was given direct election 1913 yep. women got the, the white women got the right to vote which was considered to be actually a great brick and one of the, in the activist committee in the community in the early 1920s that white women basically turned their backs on black women and took the and took the right to vote while leaving black women behind. Um, and a lot of inside of the black community, there was a lot of felt betrayal at the same time. Of black men took the opportunity to vote and didn't keep advocating for the right for black women to vote. And it's like, yeah, like those are true, but it's also a a pragma a pragmatic um, point of like they listen. They offered some of us the right to vote, so we're going to take it or not. Um, like. You, you know, the, you know, they they were they just got done, and you know, white people just got done enslaving. So, well, and you what's know, really interesting is is if if in theory they could have taken the right to vote and then used it to vote for you know to continue to pass it along, versus if they all <laughs> refuse it until then they you know yeah that's that's interesting. <laughs> so yeah, voter rolls are one of the more interesting things because you see a lot of news about voter roll purging and. A lot of it comes into like disenfranchise, like that plays into disenfranchisement. Now, v- purging voter rolls is a necessary process in maintaining your election books because people die. Yep. People move. Yep. People switch what county they live in. Uh, you know, like I said, people move, you know, and or it gets no gerrymandered and you're no longer in that county. <laughs> um, or it gets gerrymandered and you, and you need to, you know, and they need to change the voter rolls. Now, it can also be used pretty negatively 
Because, and like a lot of states in Tennessee, if you don't vote for two elections in a row, they take you off the voter roll. It does not matter if you, you know, you could be own a, you know, you could own a house and you could look at the president, you know, you could have looked at Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump and said, yeah, absolutely. I'm not voting in that. Then you could have looked at Donald Trump and Joe Biden like, oh, look, the same thing again. I'm not voting in that. And well, bam, you're no longer eligible to vote in the state of Tennessee and you need to refile your Right. You need to refile your paperwork. Which so is, in the st- state of Tennessee, you can do online. Just you can. And, and, I mean, speaking as someone who lives in North Dakota right now while I'm finishing my PhD, I voted both absentee and I renewed everything. Like I I have maintained everything without ever having to go back to Tennessee. Like that's, <laughs> it is possible. Speaking personal testament if you, if you yeah. want to. What, what I will say about Tennessee's um, voter absentee policy is – it does. It is a little bit of a jerk to college students in that you have to vote in person once before you're eligible to get absentee ballots. And a lot of students are going move, fresh they, at 18. They move away yeah. right at 18 to a new county and they go, yeah. oh, I want to get an absentee ballot. Yeah. And then, oh, wait a minute, I can't because I haven't already voted. And if any student ever hears me and you're in this position, just Register to vote in the county your school's in and vote in those elections. Yeah. That's, just, that's, that's, that's the best way to fix it. Um, you know, stay involved, you know, stay active. It won't mess with any of your taxes or anything. I also have some personal like bitterness about how they treat like Tennessee treats college students voting because for the longest <laughs> time we've wanted an official polling place on Middle Tennessee State University's campus. We were like, we're a huge campus, we have huge buildings, we could handle thousands of people. And you know, all and also dramatically upturn the amount of our college students voting and the county commission has explicitly said word for word this will never happen mm. we will never put a voting a polling location on a college campus and it's like okay now props to rutherford county they got rid of the voting districts so if you were registered within the county you could go and vote anywhere in the county because they use the same called the 21st century and the computer and made electronic database so they could just check to see if you voted. So like if you came in and vote at any precinct, they would check you off in the database so that no one could come into another precinct and claim to be you because then it would right. check the electronic database and go, no, this person's already voted. You, you just committed fraud. As a background, I've worked as a, I've worked as a, a poll watcher. Then those are volunteer election um, integrity people. Um, what I did is anytime someone was denied a ballot or that, when they had were given a um, provisionary ballot, meant that uh, maybe they are registered to vote. Everything's clear. They just forgot their driver's license that day. You could fill out a provisional ballot, hand that in, and then in the next couple of days, you go down to the county clerk's office and you show them your driver's license and get it resolved. And then it's a provisional ballot. Um, but we would record every time someone got turned away and every time someone got a um, provisional ballot. And and put down why, and then I gave it back to the organization I was working for. I was working for a voting rights organization because they were, you know, we were monitoring the government. We were observing the government, not the voters. Which is their job. Are the government officials conducting the law right? And if not, we are going to report it. So, which is what good citizens do. You monitor. You keep you keep files on the government because the government's keeping files on you. It's only fair. <laughs> I think uh, we're probably going to need a second to talk about the VRA and it's it's gutting if we if we want to briefly touch on that. But before we do, I, I do want to mention. Um, I, I just I don't really buy into the idea that uh, the the purging of voter rolls after two elections 
is all that bad. Like, I mean, I think that there is enough knowledge out there. There's enough help out there. It's easy enough, especially when you, depending on the state, I'll give you that. But like in general, you you can renew all of your stuff online. Like, I, I feel like there there is just not enough evidence to say that this is deliberate suppression when if I really want to vote, I'll check that stuff. And again, you have freedom and you have rights, but you also have a certain amount of responsibility. To me, part of that responsibility is if you're going to show up to vote, you need to know your rights and you need to you need to make sure that you're registered. Like, I don't think that it's worth sacrificing the potential security of the election because someone didn't check whether or not they were whether or not they were registered to vote for this election. I mean, that's and, yeah. and, I, and I don't I, think there's enough people that that harms to really say that this is like a damaging thing or suppressing. I would, I would give them a pass if they at least sent you a letter that you had been purged from the That's voting That's fair. Process. If you they gave do not notice. contact you at all. You that just get be to show up at you just get to show up at the election one day and because Tennessee does not have on-site registration as a lot of states do, meaning you can right. on-site same day registration, you can register to vote. I think it's like what, 2 weeks in advance? Uh, it's actually a whole month. Okay, 4 weeks. Ish. Um, yeah, about 4 weeks before the election. So it's like you think you're cleared to vote because right. you you know your voter registration was good and maybe you didn't vote in the past two elections, but whatever. You registered to vote. You haven't moved. Nothing's changed. So yep. you haven't received any communication from the government. So you go in there, you stand in line, and then you get to the front of the poll. And like, oh, no, we, we took you off the rolls. And yep. I think that has – when we look at so much of our country doesn't vote, you know, and we look at the concern of voter apathy, an instance like that occurring to me just – opens the door for unnecessary voter apathy that didn't have to be there. And maybe voting the purging rules after two missed elections, which is you know roughly eight years, like can be a worthwhile because you're going to get a lot of people who did move just by that yeah. action alone. But just send a letter. Yeah. And then if and then if the person's still living there, put a little return envelope of where they can just sign it and yeah. send it back and you re-add them to the voter roll. Just just make it easy. Just make it easy for the civilian. Come on. <laughs> we did a whole I, I want to transition us so you get to talk about the gutting of the VRA. Uh, we okay. have a whole video. We had uh, Joe Bob um, from the Daily Caller Live and we had Chris from the Alt-Left Podcast uh, a number of weeks ago and we went into a whole debate on this. So I will add like a link. I, I don't know if I'm pointing to it right now, but we'll add it. <laughs> we'll link it in this video uh, so that you can you can go check that out if you're interested. But uh, Josh, since we are coming up on time, why don't you yeah. uh, talk about the gutting of the VRA and then we have touched on everything you wanted to. So <laughs> go yeah, on. This, Woo! <laughs> um, and this is where kind of voting legislation stands today. So the vote the Voting Rights Act that came out of the civil rights era had a formula that only targeted specific states and specific counties yep. based on their history explicitly. Like it called states out by their name. It was like, you cannot be trusted. Which also so heavily we, targeted Southern states because this is after the... Oh, I mean, it was like, like almost exclusive. <laughs> exactly. States. It was like Southern <laughs> states and like three counties in Virginia. Right. Um, <laughs> like... It was, I mean, it was about... If you were seceding from the Union in the 1800s, you made the list is pretty much what that came down um, to. But to be fair, if you succeeded far. from the Union in, in the 1800s, you were committing voting rights crimes in the <laughs> 1900s. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, so it was gutted. Um, what, 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 what did that mean and who done it? It happened in 2013, and it was based on where Shelby County, Alabama was like, I'm pretty sure we're not being given our 14th Amendment a clause of equal protections. We are being subjugated to laws by the federal government that other states are not being subject to. There is no action these other states could take to become subject to these laws. 
It is just because we are a Shelby County, Alabama, and the Supreme Court in a 5-4 decision said, yeah, that's kind of true. You're being unfairly targeted and due process for you is not being upheld. And what they struck down was they didn't strike, strike down the crimes and things that you're not allowed to do and things that are protected by the Voting Rights Act. They struck down of what allows the Department of Justice to investigate, to verify whether or not these crimes have been committed in the first place. So the Voting Rights Act still stands, but even though crimes happen that the Department of Justice would have investigated before 2013, even if they're now reported to the Department of Justice, they can no longer investigate them. So there's a whole bunch of crime that's not getting prosecuted um, in the stance of this, uh, under this, under the guise of voting law change. Because what particularly happened is it was called pre-clearance of these states, they weren't trusted to run their elections fairly or freely. So before they made changes to their elections, they had to get the consent by the Department of Justice. This also saved the Department of Justice a lot of time because that meant the Department of Justice didn't have to start legal investigations into the crimes they committed. So it was like, listen, we can literally save the time of FBI agents by with preclearance of yeah. we don't have to investigate as much if we just prevent them from breaking the law in the first place. And, and to me, this is one of those things that like there was a time and a place, right? Like obviously Jim Crow era America, like of course, you know, when when they were blatantly doing things that are racially motivated, then, you know, there's, there's a time and a place for the federal government to step in. However, if someone like, if, if you're, if you know where I stand on things, I'm very much about individual liberties, individual rights, and then also, you know, federal government doesn't get to override the states. Like, I, I'm, I believe the states should have significantly more power. So to me, this is trying to be resurrected in the new voting laws that Democrats have been proposing that we're waiting on the Senate to, I presume, shoot down. But like they're trying to make it so that with virtually no cause whatsoever, the federal government can come in and say, we don't like this. Um, and, and to me, like gutting the VRA like that was was a good call um, personally. Like I, I think that because there, there was a time and a place, absolutely, but I don't think that we're seeing laws that people can demonstrate are racially motivated or, or even significantly suppressing votes in a way that harms specific communities like that. So, I mean, there's that certain line of like, like the, the preclearance and federal oversight was not, um, you know, what the court took issue with and in, in, in both the right. ruling and dissenting opinions that were written was a recommendation that Congress write a pre, basically they amend the civil rights act that every territory is covered by preclearance, that no state can change its voting laws without the, the consent of the Department of Justice. Which then and that was the, consistent. And, and that was the, and that, that's what the Supreme Court said. When the, 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 the five that voted them down even said, this bill is good, we like it, we like its intents, but you can't just target specific states and counties. That's not fair, that's not 14th Amendment friendly. If you want to target everyone, right. all right. But you have to target everyone or yeah. else you're not upholding due process. It, it, and it's like the Supreme Court, if they're doing their job, should easily shoot down something that's not due process or that is selectively targeting individuals. But if they if they were to come in and like explicitly target everyone, then you might have the concern raised, like I was just mentioning a second ago, of are you violating the state's constitutional right to oversee their own elections without having due do like is there an infringement there? Then the Supreme Court looks at that. But like this one seems to be like an easy you're targeting specific people. Nah, no good. No dice. Yeah. It was and it was certainly interesting. 
There's a lot of things. I mean, the history of American government can also be is when in crisis, the Supreme Court does not care what the Constitution says. Abraham Lincoln no one does. Suspending, President doesn't. <laughs> Abraham Lincoln suspending habeas corpus and just executing American citizens for being part of the Confederacy. Yep. FDR just forcibly taking over steel, uh, steel mills with the U.S. military during World War II. Yep. Now, the Supreme Court happily waited until after the war to rule against and say that both of those things were actually indeed against the law. But the Supreme Court very diligently waited until after the war. Still waiting on that Patriot Act vote, the Supreme Court, by the way. I'm not sure when the war is <laughs> over, though. And as much as we'd like to say, you know, we're not 100% sure it's racially um, motivated. What happened after in 2013 after the change of the uh, Voting Rights Act, it's pretty suspicious. Because um, 23 states changed uh, their voting laws, which was curious because this is more states than was covered by preclearance. It was just like, oh, wait a minute. The, Preclearance is gone. We're all just going to do this now. So more than the states that were covered by preclearance, which I thought was funny, just all get on board in these massive new waves of like voter legislation comes through. Tons of new restrictions of voter ID um, are created that had not existed uh, before. Um, voter roll purging rises by about 33% across the board and all, you know, across the nation as voting as um, to purge voter rolls where the conditions to purge someone from a voting role was something that you had to get preclearance. You had to have a, a preclearance approved voter role purge procedure. So we now have things that we know would fail. So there's now laws on books that would have failed preclearance and that fail the Voting Rights Act. But because there's no investigation triggering clause in the legislation, kind of think about it in MPDA terms, Ryan, like the enforcement has been removed. Right. The agency still exists. The funding still exists. The time frame still exists. But the enforcement was struck down. So there are things that are on the books violating federal law in these states right now, but because the federal government has no enforcement because of the way that the Voting Rights Act was struck was altered by the Supreme Court, right. there's nothing the federal government or the FBI's, so, um, or the, you know, the Department of Justice's um, Division of Civil Rights can do about it. Let, let me ask you this then. You said that the... That there's federal law being violated and like that sounds really bad, but to me like that can include anything from like, okay, great, like Tennessee upgraded so that they now have voter ID being required that you have photo ID when you do that, right? And that's, that's not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, that increases the security of the election, but it might technically violate federal law. When you say that, are, are, are you saying that these are and, – and when you say that it's violating like some of the civil rights and stuff – do you have specific examples of that? Because I'm curious what, what exactly you mean by that. Yeah, so like from like 2013 to 2015, across the South and whole, polling places have been on the decline writ large. Right. The number of places that you are eligible to go and vote has been on, on the decline. And that has primarily been happening in black and Latino town or Latino neighborhoods of the, the voting places closest to the suburbs, closest towards the luxury living condos. Those stay there. But the ones closer to um, where you know there's a higher concentration of like um, black or Latino voters, those are the ones in target. Like um, I think I read about this in 2018. There was a particular story of the singular voting place inside of a of a of a single town, which was comprised of about a 70% Hispanic Latino population. The state closed the single pop the single polling place within that town. So everyone in that town had to drive 45 minutes down the highway to the next town to vote. An entire town worth of people. 
regard you know disregard the fact that 70% of them were hispanic you know Latino. that should never be the case every town should at least have a polling place well, like what a low bar is that <laughs> to, i mean I, can i just have one place to vote where i live just one how do i vote like they they like legitimately they have to go out of their town to vote for their mayor their mayor is elected outside yeah. of city districts because there are no polling yeah. places in the town it's it's ridiculous i i would i i agree that it's a little absurd i i do think that I would, again, when you say that's like a civil rights violation, like I would be careful because usually that draws up this idea that it's like, ah, yes, we have to close one. Let's make it the Latino community, which it very well could be that the one that's 45 minutes away that they have to drive to just had a higher population. Like there could legitimately be a reason that that's the case because, uh, spoiler alert, our government doesn't use their funds well. And so a lot of times they have budget cuts. And I'm not saying that this is an excuse, but I am saying like before I, I would like be more fair, specific um, information before we're like, yes, this is um, <laughs> racial disparity. The one of the few elected Republicans I like, um, the governor, good old Arnie, offered the state of Texas. <laughs> he said, if you will reopen your voting places, I will pay for it. And he's made the offer to several states. He's mm -hmm. like, I will pay for your polling locations out of my own per he's like i will blank check give you a, <laughs> if you to reopen these polls and the state governments have been like no mm. and it's like okay here's this literal millionaire saying i will just pay for it myself <laughs> and they are turning down the money to not re to, and then not reopening it and it's like come on like, <laughs> they're being offered free money yeah. that they could probably even grift a little from yeah. you know and even get a good photo op with Arnold Schwarzenegger. I mean, again, the, again, though, like you're, you're expecting, you're expecting governments to make smart decisions. Like, you know, welcome to my side, Josh, where it's like, screw the government. <laughs> like, let's let's have more control uh, <laughs> as the citizens. So okay. that's what I'm saying. Of like, <laughs> them putting barriers of us controlling them makes yeah. this harder. Like every time, every time a citizen who should be able to vote runs into a problem that prevents them from voting. And they sh and where the where otherwise they should have been vote. I myself, as an American citizen, am harmed. Hmm. Every time someone's constitutional rights are abridged, I, as an American citizen, am harmed. Every time someone's human rights are abridged, I, as a human, are you know, am harmed. You know, because if it can be done to someone else, it can be done to me. But I also want to take a second and say, if that is the level of narcissism it takes to get you to care about someone else. Think about it for a second, because it shouldn't matter if it can, it, things shouldn't matter of, oh, well, it might affect me now. Like you should have it in you to be go, you know, oh, this like hurts other people. I don't care if it may impact me in the future. I care that it's impacting me, me now. Like if you disagree that it's hurting people, that's one thing. If you disagree that if you only care because it might hurt you later, you're just a selfish jerk. <laughs> it still works though as a motivating factor. Here, here's what I think is important I mean, yeah, to remember as we I'll take it. I'll as take we it. balance, right? So even as we're talking about, there are values that must be balanced. And having our backgrounds in debate, we understand this. And I think that the major values that I would point out here would be security versus accessibility. And you're trying to balance that. And of course, there are instances where the government messes up and they they I mean, they mess up a lot. I, I do, th I, I would caution, like Josh, your whole point from an emotional appeal standpoint does make sense. I would be careful to say though, that because there are regulations put into place, that means people are being harmed. Like again, I think we need to keep in mind that when the government sets regulations, it's not necessarily just to prevent people from voting who should be voting. Now, does that happen? Yes, historically, we talked about that today. Um, and currently, of course, you might find an instance of that. But again, I would caution against these types of conclusions that 
I am being harmed because there's, you know, photo IDs now required. Like <laughs> to me, I'm like, you know what? I'm actually not being harmed because it ensures that only the people who are supposed to be voting are voting. And if you really care about exercising your right, then you will exercise your due diligence that you need in order to, to make that happen. I think is kind of my, my final thought as we're getting ready to close at Josh, I'd say the, the the easier we can make it on people to vote, um, the better. When it comes to voter ID <laughs> and the the concern about election security, I would I would say that the burden of proof is being put on people of of basically like you have to prove there's no election fraud going on before, you know before we lift the voter ID laws. And anyone who's spent time in formal logic or argumentation knows that's a massive fallacy. You can't prove Bigfoot doesn't exist. You can't prove Loch Ness Monster doesn't exist because you can't survey the entire Pacific Pacific Northwest forests and conclusively determine with 100% assurance Bigfoot doesn't exist. Now, to prove Bigfoot exists is rather difficult. You need evidence. So you can... It's, you can prove positive things, but proving these negative things outside of some statistical tests is much harder to do. So when people come up and say, oh, well, you know, we need to make sure our election's secure, we need to make sure you know, that only the right people are voting, my response is always going to be, then show me an election that's been impacted by people voting when they shouldn't have been because as far as the Department of Justice, FBI, and NSA, and every other government agency is concerned from state, federal, local, and county level – that hasn't happened. So why put a barrier up in the first place for a harm that we don't have evidence for in the first place? So I would say the burden of proof of election security rests on the people claiming that fraud is happening, that they need to prove that fraud is happening rather than that, that we need to disprove that fraud is happening because that's just a, a ridiculous like turn of the burden of proof, I, of, of, I think, of like, if you want to make a change to the government, you know, to propose a bill, the burden of proof is like, on them to have that. So if election security is a concern, then let's see an election that was changed and that a court didn't go back and later fix, or rather that a court interrupted the fixing of looking at you, Al Gore, rather than just saying, oh, we need we need to make sure our election's secure. Ergo, we're going to pass these laws. Well, if our election is already secure, there's no justification, no harms for your, for those laws. Thus, I am going to vote neg. Um, <laughs> the app has to prove harms and burden of proof. Sorry. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's like, so if I can, if if someone wants to come and show me evidence of tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of ballots being cast illegitimately that are swinging elections and making things unfair, or where people are voting in mass where they shouldn't be. Oh, maybe consider it. I haven't seen a single headline like that in my entire 26 years now of like reading the news every day. I've seen minor fraud happen. I've seen um, low-level fraud of someone voting twice or someone voting for a relative when they shouldn't have. I've seen um, elected officials commit voting fraud by voting for another, like in Tennessee, like this actually was in Tennessee. Um, you didn't have to be present um, or in quorum to vote. Or that, Okay, that's going to be confusing. You had to be in quorum because I've seen quorum, but you did not have to be present of the quorum to have your ballot cast. So they would have these sticks so that they could lean over to another legislator's desk and press the button for them. Now, this was mostly done in good faith. Like someone would text a friend, hey, I can't make it in today. Can you like vote on this legislation for me? So no one was ever like manipulating this, like the state votes by pressing someone's button against their will because that would obviously 
be a very big faux pas. And I don't, mm. I don't think that ever happened, but it was still, it got changed because it was just this epitome of laziness of yeah. you all can't even show up to vote. So you're asking people to vote on your behalf and you're the elected <laughs> officials. Like, come on, like, no, you have to show up to vote in the house. Sorry. So if, um, if I had to summarize, I think where Josh and I disagree the most, Josh thinks you need the burden of proof to show that mass amounts of voter fraud are happening. I think you need mass swaths, like statistically significant amounts of suppression happening. Uh, I think both are valid points. Like I, I think that uh, <laughs> that that kind of helps us converge. Um, we we started with the history. We interjected a lot of our opinions at the end, and we definitely got we got our debate in here anyway. So you all are welcome. <laughs> well, and I would I would say this is I took a you know a mass communication history research, and a lot of people like to pretend that history is this open and closed book and i and again the public school system has been lying to you and that is because of those multiple choice bubble quiz exams of you get down and you take in an exam about history and then you fill out your little bubble sheet and it's that answer and rarely 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 is that ever the case if you go talk to a professional historian who's working in academia they'll tell you that they you know there's a set of facts that you have to ground your analysis in the facts of the past, but then you have to interpret them based on the available context and information you have to make a compelling argument of why we should understand this particular part of history in this way. History is an art of an interpretation. That's why I want to say in Rage Against the Machines, I want to, I think it's testify. <laughs> if it's not testify, it's a guerrilla radio. But there's a, one of the bridges is, you know, who controls the past now controls the future. And so this ability to go back and rewrite um, the past, or we tell stories that Thanksgiving was a happy celebration, or we tell stories about the founding of the great democracy of America versus this very small aristocratic group of people voting, that it really wasn't a people's revolution, that it was just an elite revolution, then we can critically undermine some of the elements of like where we can challenge like the system of government because a lot of the belief from people that, oh, I can just defaultly trust the government because they're working in my best interest can get undermined through this examination of history when, you know, that wasn't the case of when we can very clearly see the narratives we're taught in the museums and our school systems were lies and propaganda of our own state to, you know, make us look good. And every country does that. We're not special. Um, Germany may be perhaps the only honest country with itself. I'm doing the same thing. I'm taking a historical narrative and framing it and using it to make an argument about what we should do now. And that's why I think preserving the history and kind of the deeper like nitty gritty concerns and interrogating the behaviors of governments and the way they act now and the way they acted then and seeing where they differed and where it's different now allows us to get that better undermining of the government uh, to not completely buy into all of the propaganda they feed us of, you know, I'm sure the election protection laws are for my own safety as much as I am sure that the Patriot Act is here for my own safety. They may, they, they both make me feel very good inside the Uncle Sam's watching over what I do and making sure everything is, is right and proper. All right. Well, you can find us on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, Twitch, and Google Podcasts. Like Josh mentioned at the start of this, be sure to follow us on our social media so you can stay updated and know uh, exactly what's going on and when we have our special guests. And uh, if you enjoy this show, be sure you give us a five-star review, get that algorithm up and running, and share us with your friends. Make sure you find yourself somewhere between the liars. Goodbye for now.